0: Ensure your next purchase is a real deal and shop authentic handbags, watches, sneakers, streetwear and jewellery from eBay, backed by Authenticity Guarantee. Visit ebay.com for terms. This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just
1: listening right now. You're driving, cleaning and even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive?
0: You're listening to the New Yorker Poetry Podcast. I'm Paul Muldoon, the poetry editor of the magazine, and it's a pleasure to have you here today. As you may know, on this programme... We invite a poet to choose a poem from the New Yorker Archive. He or she reads it, we talk about it, then we ask them to read one of their own poems that we've published in the magazine. And I'm delighted to say that my guest today is Jonathan Galassi, a poet, and also the president and publisher of Fireside Strauss & Giroux, which I'm at full disclosure, he is my own publisher and he's my editor. Uh, he's among as many honours, he's been the recipient of a Guggenheim Fellowship. Welcome, Jonathan Galassi. Thank you so much, Paul. It's an honor and a pleasure to be with you here. So the poem you've chosen to read is by Frederick Seidel, or Fred Seidel, poem by the bridge at Ten Shin, poem by the bridge at Ten Shin. What drew you to that?
1: What drew me to it is the ambition of it. Fred is a good friend of mine, and he's also one of our poets at FSG. And He is someone who's very uh, assiduously stands apart from most of what's going on in poetry today. And I think that that uh, stance has stood him in good stead. He's written some, some of the really great poetry of our time. He is unapologetically... Looks backward in certain ways. He he affects a posture that uh, is a kind of um, persona that he has created in his poems that is uh, quite uh, confrontational in many ways, and which I think is very effective. His his middle initials are not Fred P C. <laughs> not at all. Absolutely not. They might be Fred F U. Sidell. <laughs>
0: Well, of course, you know, poets that are I think, I think, meant to be provocative. I mean I do think that's one of the thing that the things that poetry is attempting. I think on balance it's meant to be provocative rather than soothing. At least that's the poetry that interests me. And Frederick's ideal, I think, certainly falls into that category.
1: Uh, yes, provocation is uh, is certainly one of the great strains of the poetic tradition. I think I'm sitting with a poet who's quite provocative in his own ways.
0: Well, you know, as I say, we, we we try, we try. Now, Fred, Frederick Seidel is, as you say, a master of the. Uh, one of the things he's he's a master of is the uh, is, a, is the technical, the large form, the received form, the big stanza.
1: Yes, this, this poem is written in 14-line stanzas, which uh, have a kind of a sonetic subtext. It, the title is uh, lifted from Ezra Pound's Cathay. Ezra Pound himself was doing a pastiche of Li Po when mm. he when he wrote a uh, poem by the bridge at Tenshin. Mm. Li Po's poem is really about change, about how the present is not like the past, about what's been lost. And of course, that's probably at least two or three on the themes of most poetry. Fred has has adapted that and used it to his own uh, autobiographical and political purposes in this poem, which I think is
0: quite a masterpiece, actually. Now, to what extent... I mean, all poetry is autobiographical, I suppose, even when the poet is writing through a a persona. Um, Though, of course, we have to remember the other side of that is that the the persona is actually to the fore, always. Now, is this poem truly, quote-unquote, autobiographical, would you say?
1: Well, it uh, looks back at his career in a certain way, at, at aspects of his life. But... The points of contact that he that he chooses to uh, talk about or to write about are symbolic. So I would say most poetry, yes, starts from some sort of autobiographical impulse because that's the material that the poet has to work with. But it's always torqued by whatever the other motives. That the poet uh, is operating with when he's writing the poem.
0: One of the things I really love about this poem, and we'll hear you read it in a moment, is the opening. <laughs> this jungle poem is going to be my last, and I, one of the, one of the last things a poet wants to think about, I'd imagine, is that this poem is going to be her, uh, her, his, or their last.
1: Yes, I mean I think there's an there's an irony in that, of course, because it. Of course, it's not his last poem, but that statement, that claim, is is part of the insolence, uh, and also the sense of loss that that underlies it. I think that in in Seidel, as in many poets, it's always two sides of a coin that you're you're being exposed to: the insolence, the uh, defi, as they'd say, the defiance uh, against a reality that isn't necessarily uh, friendly, and also the sense that something has, is passing, something is gone. So the sense of lastness is there. At the, he declares it right at the beginning.
0: Well, just before we go into the poem, there are a couple of words that we should really gloss because I was not familiar with them. One is minuterie, which uh, I think is uh, a reference to... Uh, in In a French apartment
1: house when mm-hmm. you come in there's, it's dark and you have to turn a little dial which allows you to uh, the light to go on so you can get to the elevator uh, before it goes out.
0: It probably refers to the number of minutes yes. one has right. between that light going on and the light going out. So dos caballeros or two 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 boys I guess or two, co- two, two cowboys two cowboys, yeah. Two, yeah. Riot, two horsemen two and the putty, the putty, the little angels or, um, seraphim, cherubim, or uh, seraphim, cherubim, the putty uh, pacing out uh, the hotel window. But in any case, um, so provocatively, let's hear the poem read by yourself Jonathan Gulasi, it's poem by the bridge at Ten Shin by Frederick Seidel. This
1: jungle poem is going to be my last. This spacewalk is. Racing in a cab through springtime Central Park, I kept my nose outside the window like a dog. The stars above my bed at night are vast. I think it is uncool to call young women Miz. My darling is a platform I see stars from in the dark, and all the dogs begin to bark. My grunting gun brings down her charging warthog. And she is frying on white water, clinging to a log, and all the foam and fevers shiver. And drink has made chopped liver of my liver. Between my legs it's Baudelaire, he wrote about her central park of hair. I look for the minuterie as if I were in France, in darkness, in the down entrance, looking for the light. I'm on a timer that will give me time to see the way and up the stairs before the lights go out. The so delicious Busby Berkeley dancers dance a movie musical extravaganza on the staircase with me every night. Such fun! We dance, we climb, we slip in slime. We're squirting squeezes like a wedge of lime. It's like a shout. It's what minuterie is all about. Just getting to the landing through the dark that has been interrupted for a minute is a lark. And she's so happy. It is grand. I put my mobile in her ampersand. The fireworks are a fleeting puff of sadness. The flowers, when they reach the stars, are tears. I don't remember poems I write. I turn around and they are gone. I do remember poor King Richard Nixon's madness. Pierre Laval, we loved those years. We knocked back shots of single malt all night. Beer chasers gave Dos Caballeros double vision, second sight. Twin pooty pissing out the hotel window on the Scottish dawn. A crocodile has fallen for a fawn. I live flap copy for a children's book. He wants to lick, he wants to look. A tiny goldfinch is his cupid. Love of country makes men stupid. It makes men miss Saddam Hussein. Democracy in Baghdad makes men think monstrosity was not so bad. I followed Gandhi barefoot to remind me there is something else till it began to rain. The hurricane undressing of democracy in Baghdad starts to sink the shrunken page size of the New York Times. And yet we had a newspaper that mattered once, and that is sad. But that was when it mattered. Do I matter? That is true. I don't matter, but I do. I lust for fame, and after never finding it, I never was the same. I roar into the heavens, and I soared, and landed where I started on a flexing diving board. I knew a beauty named Dawn Green. I used to wake at the crack of dawn. I wish I were about to land on Plymouth Rock and had a chance to do it all again, but do it right. It was green dawn in pre-America. I mean, great scented forests all along the shore, which now are gone. I've had advantages in life, and I pronounce Iraq, Iraq. The right schools taught me how to talk. I'm talking Turkey to the Kurds, but with no end in sight. These peace talks are my last. Goodbye, Iran. Iran, good night. They burned the undergrowth so they could see the game they hunt. That made the forest a cathedral clear as crystal, like a cunt. Their arrows entered red meat in the glory, streaming down from the clearest story. Karine Rueff, I was obsessed. I was possessed. I liked your name. I liked the fact Marie-Christine Karine Rueff was Jewish. It emphasized your elegance in Paris and in Florence, You were so blonde in Rue de l'Université. The dazzling daughter of de Gaulle's advisor, Jacques Rueff, was game for anything. I'm lolling here in Mayfair, under bluish clouds above a bench in Mount Street Gardens, thinking torrents. Purdy used to make a gun for shooting elephants. One cannot be the way one was back then, today. It went away. I go from Claridge's to Brand's Hatch racing circuit and come back to Claridge's and out and eat and drink and bed and fade to black. The elephants were old enough to die but were aghast. The stars above this jungle poem are vast. To 92nd Street and Broadway I have come. Outside the windows is New York. I came here from St. Louis in a covered wagon overland, behind the matchless prancing pair of Elliot and Ezra Pound. And countless moist oases took me in along the way, and some I still remember when I lift my knife and fork. The earth keeps turning, night and day, spit roasting, all the tan, tired icebergs and the polar bears, which makes white almost contraband. The biosphere on a rotisserie emits a certain sound that tells the stars that Earth was moaning pleasure while it drowned. The amorous white icebergs flash their brown teeth hissing. They're watching old porn videos of melting icebergs pissing. The icebergs still in pantyhose are lesbians and kissing. The rotting ocean swallows the bombed airliner that's missing.
0: What a remarkable poem. I mean, apart from anything else, it, uh, it turns out to f- certainly concentrate at the end on the fate of the planet, um, a rather large topic and a rather pressing topic, uh, which I think we're all going to have to readdress uh, in the coming years, particularly the next four.
1: Um, it certainly gives a another meaning to the first line of the poem, this jungle poem is going to be my last. That's Why right. is it going to be his last? There's there's a there's some things to think about there.
0: Well, the jungle is disappearing. That's part of it, of course, isn't it?
1: The jungle is disappearing, and so is the planet in a way. What I love about this poem, well, I love many things, but one of the things I love is how he uses rhyme in a kind of insolent way. There's a kind of conventional rhyming in the poem, and then there's a kind of nursery rhyming, and there's a kind of obsessive, obsessional, uh, hysterical rhyming. The poem rises and rises to this kind of uh, sense of, of crisis.
0: Well, indeed, there's something desperate uh, in at least a couple of senses about the very end, hessing, pissing, kissing, messing. It's the kind of thing we were told not to do when we were kids in the poetry school. Exactly, and that's why he's doing it. Being
1: a bad boy is part of of, of the persona that Fred uses in his poems. And uh, there's a kind of insistence, a kind of violence to to that That's that's very powerful, I think.
0: In a strange way, um, although there's a reference in the title to Ezra Pound, as you mentioned, Elliot and Ezra Pound are not necessarily the obvious pair of, uh, the prancing pair of horses or uh, oxen, I suppose, that might be drawing or dragging the wagon overland. They're not necessarily the, the poets who lie behind this poem. I think
1: Seidel sees himself as a kind of... Uh... Latter-day extension of the modernist experiment, which is, you know, the the whole thing about the overland wagon is it's going backwards. It's not instead of going west, it's coming back east, which is, of course, what well Elliot, who was also from St. Louis, did. And there so there's that kind of, again, ironic overlay to that. And Pound was someone who was very important to Fred as he as a young poet and Eliot and Pound of course themselves were the were the prancing pair of caballeros who who made modernism happen
0: for some reason as i was listening to you read this the name rochester came to me the earl of rochester mm-hmm. i mean i think um, he, he he i think is his again to use that word provocative uh, outrageous uh, poetry um, sexual um what will say grotesqueries in in many cases um um i think may lie behind this also but um, who else what about the um the technical aspect of it i mean he is able to manage a stanza in a way that uh I think is reminiscent of Yeats, very uh, perhaps Philip Larkin. Very few people can actually pull this off. And what is it you're seeing,
1: Paul, when you in these stanzas? Do you feel that the, each one is a construction unto itself? Well,
0: I, I'm talking about just the way in which he's able to manage quite a complex stanzaic shape uh, with with such apparent ease. And very few people have, I think, in the twentieth century, certainly have been able to do this. Yeats is one of the few, and Larkin another. I'm not even sure in the American tradition who who might lie behind Seidel. I think Lowell is a
1: very important uh, master for for Seidel, and and he could certainly do that. He certainly could. Yeah, and I would say that. You could see the insolent torquing of Seidel as a kind of reworking of, of Lowellian grandiloquence in a kind of
0: different key. You know, that's a very useful way of thinking about him. It really is. Jonathan Galassi, thank you very much indeed for that. And I would love to hear uh, your own poem, which just happens to be entitled Lunch Poem for F.S., Yes, I uh, I thought
1: that I would uh, have a little coda to Fred's poem by reading a poem that I wrote about a lunch that I had with Fred. Lunch poems, of course, are a great New York tradition. The originator of the lunch poem, of course, was Frank O'Hara, who didn't so much write about lunch as write at lunch. <laughs> and uh, uh, he... I think, is the ultimate New York poet, poet about New York, and his lunch poems have a kind of effervescence and a sense of sexiness and joy and uh, unabashed
0: love of our city that uh, make them classic. And, of course, as an editor, I hope you don't mind my saying, one of your chores, I suppose, is to have the odd lunch.
1: Yes, and that's, I mean, that's... That's my ironic twist here on the lunch poem because my poem, this poem is not written at lunch. It's written about lunch and about the 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 ritual of lunch, which, which is the author and the editor having lunch together. It's it's uh, another New York tradition. And this poem is about, it fits into the où sont les neiges d'antan tradition of, of uh Fred's poem, too, because it's about a restaurant that doesn't exist anymore, Montrachet, which was down uh, in Soho and only served lunch on Fridays. It was an art world restaurant it was a great restaurant uh, and uh it it was a it specialized in Burgundian food and burgundy wines, and it was quite the gourmet uh locale. And it was great fun to go down there on Friday and sort of pretend that the rest of the world didn't exist, and that's what this poem is about.
0: No, one of the things I really like about this poem is that you do a little of uh, throwing of throwing of Fred's voice. I mean, there's a line here, uh, not her own, but that passes for Shinola, which of course might might well come from a Fred Sidel poem. Well,
1: yes, it's it's certainly it's about a type of conversation that went on or goes on between the two of us. There's a jocular quality and there is a kind of um, ventriloquizing in the poem. And Shinola. Shinola, we say. Shinola is is shoe polish. Ah. And, and, and it's, if you don't know... From Shinola,
0: that's an American phrase. Of course it is. But, well, there's another reading. Let me be so bold. I think my pronunciation, uh, Shinola, Uh um, I I, I read it, uh, actually. Of course, now I recognize the the term. But I was also thinking about... uh, because I went to the trouble of looking this up, and the first thing I saw, of course, was Shinola as a watch company, huh. a very high-end watch company, hmm. and I assumed that actually that might be part of the uh, part of what's going on here. But of course, the main thing clearly has to do with this uh, well-known phrase or saying, which I in fact just forgot about for a moment.
1: I'm interested in that. I didn't know that, but uh, I think that actually the political subtext of this poem is very apposite in our current moment because it's really, this is, the subtext here is the decision to go into Iraq and the kinds of debates there were about it uh, that uh, everyone was obsessed by. There was this, this kind of neocon idea that we were going to save the world for democracy by toppling Saddam Hussein. You heard what Fred said about that in his poem. Uh, all that is is
0: here in the poem. As a poet, uh, but also as an editor, do you expect to see a lot more of what we would think of in general terms as political poetry over the next year or two?
1: I think that I expect... There to be a lot of stock taking and, yes, I, probably, I, I think probably, probably most of it won't be terribly thought through or, or it will be emotional
0: rather than considered. But well, most of it isn't thought through no matter what its subject is. <laughs> uh, really, let's face it, it's very hard uh, for all of us. But uh, I think it's likely that there will be more, more references to current affairs, let's call them.
1: Yes, more problems for you as an editor.
0: And more for you. <laughs> Let's hear this lunch poem for F.S.
1: Lunch poem for F.S. The dirty sunlight in the clerestory windows of our faux Parisian lair Lends a streaky, half-forgiving glow To yet another summit with no purpose Duck and iron pinot noir and double decaf espresso Sheer necessities for urban inmates who still keep the faith with a wan cerise velvet banquette, an eye-level mirror lit with faces a John the Baptist Puritan might judge corrupt with too much liquid happiness but it is happiness to lounge in semi-silence while the day downshifts and natter on about the shit that passes for Shinola but we know is only sauce for the gander. It's not that we're against the war, we're against them, the boobs, the pimps, the know-it-alls, the true believers, everyone who isn't here awash in downtown gold inhaling the exhaust of burgundy. Loafing, gloating, having it our way, Friday afternoon at Montrachet.
0: Without beautiful closing couplet, putting the lid on it. There are a lot
1: of Sidelian things in here and the couplet is probably one of them. But I noticed clear story. He stole that from me. So maybe <laughs>
0: I don't know which poem came first. But I think I think mine did actually. Yeah. Ask you a question, which may seem a bit odd. Did anything else strike you as you as you reread the poem? There, anything that came to the fore? Anything that that uh, because at this stage, actually, you of course are really just another reader of the poem. Yes,
1: yes. What I what I feel reading this poem again is how intensely it it reminds me of a period in New York. Uh, life in our political life, in that you know, is past. It it has a pastness to a, to it. It has that a in downtown gold quality. I mean, I I'm actually someone who I have a kind of nostalgia for restaurants that have passed. They represent forms of attention, forms of of social life uh, that. Are codified in their way of being, and when they go, that that's gone. That's part of the past. So poetry is so much about pastness. I think F- Fred's poem certainly is, and I, and this one is too, in its own way.
0: It is, but it's also very much up to the moment, and that's one of the great things about both these poems, actually, that they resonate in from moment to moment. They're not kind of consigned to their own pasts.
1: No, I think I think. The lament for the past is a very presentist thing. And the ghost behind this poem, of course, is Frank O'Hara, because Frank O'Hara was the, the apologist for life. I can't remember that wonderful phrase about not regretting living. You know that, that's, that's the aegis under which this poem was conceived. And, and it's a New York poem. And New York, New York is about life, I think.
0: Well, what a lovely note on which to end this New Yorker poetry podcast with uh, Jonathan Galassi, who was reading his own poem there, Lunch Poem for F.S., and, of course, he also read F.S.'s poem, Frederick Seidel's poem, Poem by the Bridge at Ten Shin. And, Jonathan Galassi, thank you so much for talking to us today. Thank you, Paul. It was great. Poem by the Bridge at Ten Chin by Frederick Seidel and Lunch Poem for F.S. by Jonathan Galassi may be found on newyorker.com. Frederick Seidel's latest book of poems, Widening Income Inequality, was published earlier this year and Jonathan Galassi's most recent collection is Left Handed. Thank you so much for being with us today. Until soon, bye-bye.
1: You can subscribe to this podcast and other free New Yorker podcasts in the iTunes store. You can hear more poetry read by the authors in newyorker.com and on the digital edition for tablets and phones at no extra charge from the App Store or from Google Play. The theme music is the Pintigree Ferryman from the album The Highlander's Farewell by Alistair Fraser and Natalie Ross from Colburny Records. The New Yorker Poetry Podcast was produced by Jill Duboff and Alex Barron of NewYorker.com with help from Elizabeth Dennison.
0: I'm David Remnick, host of the New Yorker Radio Hour.